Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. So we're picking up in our um, second sermon here in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 together. And we will um, move through the second part of this section that we began looking at last week. Primarily, we'll be looking at the second part of verse 5 through uh, the first part of verse 8. And so we'll read that together in just a moment as we uh, turn our attention there. One of the goals as we have been looking at this is to see how it is, as we saw last week, that Jesus said, uh, they will know you, they will know that you belong to me, right? They will know that you are mine by your love for one another. And here in 1 Corinthians 13, we really begin to see that spelled out. What does this word love mean? Uh, our culture has a lot of ideas about what the word love means, but we need to be informed by God's word. And so we turn our attention here and look. What we can see uh, in this is that in our culture, there is much division. You don't have to ask too many people to get agreement on that, that there's a lot of division, there's a lot of fracturing going on in our culture and society. You don't have to look far uh, on the cable news networks, on social media, and just in conversations uh, in the workplace, in the community, to see that there's much division. Just last night, I went to one of our politicians, our state politicians, and I got on their social media feed, and I just picked one post. I just picked one post that they made, and I thought, let me just read the replies that they got to that post. And here are some of those replies. Another abuse of power. You are doing nothing. Thank you for your work. You stupid, and I just have dot, 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 which means I can't finish the rest of that. And then the next one is, you are a coward and a fool. Thank you for all you do. You, all caps, are responsible for this catastrophe. Now, this is everywhere, right? I just picked one random post. I could have spent the whole night. I could have spent the whole night reading replies to those replies, which would just have returned kind and kind, right? But what about the church? Unfortunately, there are some cases where I could get on church social media feeds, right? In the evangelical world, and things wouldn't look much different than this. But in the church, we should be distinctively different. We should be markedly different. We should look like what we see here in 1 Corinthians 13. I was reading through a booklet this week, and I'm going to throw some quotes from it on the screen, and it's just a new booklet that came out that I would commend to you. It's called How Can I Love Church Members with Different Politics. It's written by Jonathan Lehman and Andy Nasali. And this is what they say. Just notice this. They're talking about what makes the church so unique. There's been nothing like the church in the history of the world. Every other nation has been united either by powerful men with swords or by family relations. Yet now a new nation exists, meaning the church. I'm talking about the church as a nation, right? Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. That's why they're referring to it as a nation. Yet now a nation exists, held together by neither sword nor family, but only by word and spirit. God took a bunch of natural enemies, saved them by his son's precious blood, or blood and the spirit's power, and created a united and peace-sharing people. This is what the church is to be. Continue on. The local church is where enemy tribes start beating swords into plowshares and spears in the pruning hooks. It's where black and white, rich and poor, young and old, educated and uneducated, American and Chinese, sanitation worker and senator unite. What does all this mean particularly for you? It means you show up at the church's gathering on Sunday knowing your job is to beat those swords into plowshares. How do we do this in the church? How is it where tribalism exists in the world and, it, and it's going to have that, there's going to be some of that here in the church? We could go and survey right now. There's a variety of political opinions in this room. 
There's a variety of opinions on mask, no mask. There's a variety of opinions on, on should we return to school now? Do we do online learning? That we can even move outside of the current issues at hand and we'll find a variety of opinions on all kinds of things. We'll talk about some of that as we move through the sermon. But how is it in the church where the world tends to say disagreement equals hate, but yet in the church we can say disagreement doesn't equal hate, And yet, even when we disagree about these things, we can still hug one another, sincerely love one another, because there is something greater that unites us than our opinions about politics, about current cultural pressing issues. And what that thing is that unites us is the greatest thing in all the world. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our Savior who laid down his life for us that we just observed in our singing together and in the Lord's Supper together. The here is something that unites us. Here is something greater, a greater identity that transcends everything else and every tribal identity that we could ever imagine. And it's the gospel of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 13, we are learning how to beat those swords of tribalism into plowshares. That's what we're learning to do right here. As we said last week, we cannot generate this love, right? In this is love, not that we loved first, but that God loved us, right? He loved us first. He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So we don't generate this love. We can't do that. And and, and it doesn't come from us. It comes from God and the love that he has given to us in Christ Jesus in the gospel. That's where this love comes from. Yet, as we said last week at the end of the sermon, we don't generate the love, but we can, by God's grace, cultivate it. We can, by God's grace, cultivate it. Even as we look at 1 Corinthians 14, 1a, Paul ends this section by saying, pursue love. Pursue love, right? Philippians 2, let me just give you another example. As he says there, as he says, consider not your interests only, but the interests of others also. In 2, 5, he says, this it is yours in Christ Jesus. He's calling them to it, but he says, you already have it. Do you see that? And so we can see it cultivated. We can see, our, see it grow in our lives. So I said I would give you two verses last week that I didn't have on hand this uh, then that I do now. Here's the first one. It's 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Paul says this to the church at Thessalonica. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. You notice the parallel to the passage we're looking at? We'll see that in a minute. Faith, hope, and love. So he, he commends that. He commends in the beginning of that letter to the church at Thessalonica. He says, I'm so thankful for your faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. But then later in that letter, 1 Thessalonians 3.12, write that down, 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So he commends them saying, you have this love, but he says, what I would love to see for you, church at Thessalonica, is I would love to see, I'm praying that you would increase in this love and abound, it speaks of overflow, that it would just overflow from your lives into the corporate life of the church. And then you can just go and read into uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and he commends them for love again, right? Here's the deal, when we talk about these kinds of things in the church, it doesn't mean... Matt, why are you talking about this? Do you think we're an unloving church? No, friends, let's be humble, brothers and sisters in Christ. None of us have arrived until we have arrived and seen Christ face to face, right? We're not there yet. And we all have room to grow. Just as Paul is commending the church at Thessalonica, saying, I commend you for this love. And then he says, I would love to see it increase and overflow more and more. That's our prayer as we turn our attention here to 1 Corinthians 13. That we remember that our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, and that our love for one another should look distinctively different from the Lord. That we should be able to have loving conversations about things on which we disagree while retaining our love for one another. Not only in word, but in deed. You hear me? Not only in word, but in deed. You gotta you gotta catch this. We live in the South. A lot of you are from the South. We're not talking about southern nicety and politeness, right? Those things just evaporate, as Mark Dever once said, fifteen minutes after we all drive out of the parking lot. We're talking about 
love, not just in word, but in deed, as we see here in 1 Corinthians 13. That we can disagree with one another on lesser things, but love one another because something greater unites us. This is the kind of love that draws outsiders in. Right? This is the kind of love that draws outsiders in. Let me just offer you a quick paraphrase of another book from Jonathan Lehman, The Rule of Love. He says that, that yes, there's an outside and an inside in the church. There are those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. He said, but the church has a glass door so that those outside can see in and can say, that's what I want to be a part of. And they can enter in with a simple push of repentance and faith. They can come into the life of the church. All right, without further ado, 1 Corinthians 13. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 together. This is God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is God's word. So last week we looked there at verses 1 through 5a. We, we left off right there at the beginning of, chapter, of verse 5 with love is not rude. And so we're going to pick up right there where we left off. And so the very next thing is we saw that, that Paul talked about a couple of things. He said, you know, we can do great things, but if we don't have love, then it doesn't mean anything, right? He says, I, I am nothing, I gain nothing, I have nothing. It's the kind of language that, that he's using there. I offer nothing. And so then he says that love is patient and kind. And really by filling out what patience and kindness are, he, kind of, he begins to tell us from there what love is not. Okay? And so, so for us to really understand what patience and kindness is, well, well kindness is not envious or, or boastful. right? Patience and kindness is not arrogant or rude. And then the very next thing that he says is love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Even contextually right here within the book, over in 1 Corinthians 10, as he's dealing with in 8, 9, and 10, uh, Christian liberty issues and food sacrifice to idols, that, that issue that was there and prevalent and prominent in the church and the life of the church at Corinth, as he talks about that, notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 24, he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's what he says. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. It sounds very similar to Philippians chapter 2 that we referenced just a moment ago, right? Consider not your interests only, but the interest of others. What immediately precedes verse 24 is 23. I know I'm not great at math, but, but there you are. 23 is right before 24. And, and notice what he says. He says, all things are lawful. But catch this, but not all things build up. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Not all things are, are good for the life of the church. And then he follows that with 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so here, he's just bringing that back up. In 1 Corinthians 13, he's saying that this is what love is. Love is not those who are insisting on their own way. Now, this is probably not an issue today in the church, is it? We've never seen, if we've been in churches long, where a church has been torn apart by people insisting on their own way, have we? Oh, okay, maybe we have. And, and so, so what we're seeing here is that we're talking about seeking part of this. Let me just get at this from one angle, because we could approach this from a lot of different angles, right? But let's approach this from one angle, that part of what happens when we're seeking our own way is that we're seeking our own personal preferences. 
And when we begin to seek our own personal preferences, and, and we'll, we'll go deep here in just a minute, deeper than any of us want to, myself included, but, but part of what's happening there is that we want to seek our own personal preferences because we feel really comfortable around people who are just like us, and it's really easy to love those people, okay? And, and so, so we're, we're seeking our own preferences. So let me quote from a book called Compelling Community. And, and here's what we see. As the church, we're called to be gospel people, right? Not gospel plus people, right? Not gospel plus people. And the, and the temptation is, is that when we, when we want to seek our own preferences, we want to be a gospel plus community. Like, yes, we have Jesus in common and we have this in common. That's what the plus is, right? We have Jesus in common and we have this in common. It, it could be the style of the church, right? We all want this style of church. It, it could be generational connection. We all want to be this same generation uh, bracket, this same age group, age demographics. We all want the same socioeconomic demographic within our church because we're more comfortable with those people. Or, or we even have these hobbies in in, in common, maybe it's school preferences, right? That we are gospel plus people and that we love the gospel and we have Jesus in common and we have homeschool in common and we have public school in common and we have private school in common. Or we're all gospel plus people that we love Jesus and we all have the same politics. And on and on and on we could go. So, so let, let's boil it down. Our preferences are about our comfort, and as we said, it's easy and comfortable to be with people like me. And here's why. Here's why it's easy and comfortable to be with people who are just like you. They don't try your patience as much. Right? Because they just don't say things that annoy you. They laugh at your jokes. You guys don't laugh at mine. <laughs> right? I mean, that's why it's easy to be around, or be around people who are like you. So not only do they not try your patience, they don't tempt you to envy. Because they take they vacation the same place as you vacation, they, or they don't vacation at all, like you don't vacation at all. They have the same kind of car that you have, you know, on and on and on we can go. They aren't rude to your sensibilities. Right? They kind of know how you are because they're kind of like you, and they're not going to be rude about those things. See, when we all do this, we insist on our own way, and we say this is, this is how we'll have unity, that we'll have gospel plus, because we're people who are united by the gospel, plus these other things. Friends, that's not love. That's not love. That's the way the world does community. You just remove the gospel, and you can go find all of those civic clubs and organizations who are gathered around the same things. The public school association, the private school, the homeschool association, right? The DNC, the RNC, on and on and on we can go. But that's not what love is. Gospel unity brings us together with people who are not like us. This gospel breaks down, as Ephesians 2 says, the dividing walls of hostility in only love, like we see here in 1 Corinthians 13, will sustain gospel community. Only the love that we see here in 1 Corinthians 13 will sustain this gospel community. Why? Because it comes from the gospel, is fueled by the gospel, and will be sustained by the gospel. So the big question is, is, is where are you insisting on your own way? And, and here, here's the big temptation because we, you can say, well, great, we're here and we're diverse, but don't forget about 1 Corinthians 1 through 3 because the temptation is, is to break up into our tribes within the church. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. I am of Christ, right? I am of Dever. I am of MacArthur. I am of Founders. I'm trying to think of what other toes to step on. No toe left out, Right? Right? And I, I named my preference in there, I'll be honest with you. But the temptation is to divide up within the tribes 
within the church and still think we have some sort of quasi-unity within the church, unity and diversity, when really we're campaigning for uniformity and just hoping our side wins. Oops, I think I just said that out loud. That happens, right? It happens, we're all tempted to do it. So beware of this temptation to divide into preference-driven tribes within the church. Beware of this temptation to insist on your own way. And I know some of you have this nagging question that's going on within you. Just hold on with me. We'll get there, okay? Just hold on. I promise you I'll answer it because I know what it is. Look at what's next. Love does not insist on its own way and it is not irritable. Our irritation often stems from us not getting our own way. Right? Our irritation often stems from us not getting our own way. It doesn't insist on its own way and it's not irritable. What's irritation? It's that constant rub. Right? We were at the beach. Uh, one of our children had to wear a life jacket. He didn't want to, but he needed to. Already outed, it narrowed it down to three out of the four by saying he, I won't name him. But uh, one, one uh, evening he, he was, oh man, my neck is hurting so bad. And he's like, well, let me see your neck. What's wrong with it? And it's where the life jacket was rubbing, right? All day long on, on both sides of his neck. Small price to pay to keep him alive. So we just made him keep wearing the life jacket. <laughs> but right, that's irritation. That irritation is rubbing right there on the neck. That, that's what irritates. It's that constant rub. The irritation often manifests as grumbling, complaining, and get this, venting. Oh, I mean, we all like to vent, don't we? But what we're doing is, is we're expressing the, this, this irritation about this person that, that oftentimes we are too cowardly to just go and confront to start with or we don't have enough gospel courage just to overlook a minor offense. And so what we're doing is we're seeking revenge, friends, by grumbling, complaining, venting, gossiping because that person just really irritates me. Listen to what Phil Riken said. He said, most of us tend to think of irritability as a natural response to life's little frustrations. We also tend not to worry too much about irritability. We should take our irritability much more seriously because it is the very opposite of love. We know this because 1 Corinthians 13 says love is not irritable. Irritability is the antithesis of charity. It is not merely a way of complaining, therefore, but actually a way of hating. That's convicting. Then our irritability and expressing that irritability is it's the opposite of love. I mean, the Bible says it right here. Love is not irritable. And so it's the opposite of, opposite of love. So what we're doing in expressing that irritability is we're actually hating instead of loving. Brothers and sisters, where's that irritable, irritable spirit surface in your life? Which, which person is it when you see the name pop up, new text, new email? Ah, uh, the grumbling stars. Uh, right? Friends, we, we must beware of our irritable spirit, of our grumbling and let it, let it shine back and say, what is, this, what is this showing about me in my life? A year and a half ago, we, our whole family had gotten the flu, except for my wife. I guess she didn't need sanctification as much as the rest of us. And <laughs> I don't know how, how she got out of that one. But anyway, uh, we, all, we all had the flu and we were, we were getting over it. Or maybe her sanctification was having to deal with all of us being sick, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe it was worse for her. But I'll leave her alone because she's not even here. So, so, uh, um, but we had all had it and it was not fun. And we were just turning the corner, right? We were coming out of that 
out of that, out of that season of, of, of sickness. And, and it was a Saturday morning, and, and everybody's walking around like zombies because they're exhausted after recovering from this. And I'm there in the kitchen, and one of my children walked up to me and said, hey, Dad, can I have, I, don't, I think it was something to drink or something to eat, something simple like that. And I just said, no. I almost can't say this fucking much. And he looked at me and he said, what's wrong, Daddy? And I was just cut to the quick. And I said, buddy, nothing. Dad's just being a selfish jerk right now and he wants life to be all about him. Unfortunately, my wife walked into the room right as I was saying that. (laughs) And she said, that's real talk right there, son. (laughs) Right? which was her way of saying, amen, but, (laughs) right? But brothers and sisters, something so, I mean, what, by God's grace in that moment, just his simple question, it was nothing, right? To me, it was nothing. Uh, That was it. What's wrong, daddy? It revealed my heart. I'm like, I just want life to be about me, bud. That's it. Daddy's a sinner too. Those small things that we think are small things that Jerry Bridges says we make respectable sins as Christians, they are revealing something about our heart that needs to be repented of, that we need to run to the gospel with and cling to. So where are you irritable with others in the church, outside of the church? Look at what he says next. He says, love is not resentful. Love is not resentful resentful. I mean, really what we're seeing here is that that Paul is saying love keeps no records of wrongs. Later when he wrote to the church in in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, he says this, in Christ God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That God in his grace, this is the gospel, that that God is not counting our trespasses against us. That that as we observed in the Lord's Supper this morning, as we have sang together and we've come and we've been able to pray in confidence, that the only way that we can stand before God is that we have been freed from the curse of the law because Christ was cursed for us. And God is not holding our trespasses. He's not holding our sins against us because Christ stands and speaks a better word for us. This is the good news of the gospel. And and what we're seeing here in in the life of the church is that this love that we have been given in Christ Jesus is to overflow into the life of the church from our life as we extend grace to others and as we are not resentful toward one another. I mean, the foundation for this is Matthew 18, 21 through 35, the parable of the unforgiving servant. We have this person who has is, who is forgiven this exuberant amount of money. It was like 10,000 talents. Scholars tell us one talent is something like, like 10 to 20 years wages. We're talking lifetimes of work here, of money, of debt. This person has been forgiven. And then when they've been forgiven of this debt from the king, they are out and about, right? And they see someone who owes them 100 denarii, I think was was the denomination that was given there. It's not in, insignificant, right? It's, a, it's somewhere around a half to a third year's wages. That's, that's a lot, right? Or a third to half, something like that. I told you I'm not good at math. And so, so it's, a, it's a significant amount of money that they won't forgive. And the whole point of the parable is this. If you've been forgiven such great debt, how can you not Forgive those around you their lesser debts. Doesn't mean that, that what they did wasn't significant, wasn't sinful. But how can we not be forgiving to one another? Friend, first of all, this morning, have you been forgiven your significant debt? You, you, you are in debt to God. He created you. He made you. You are, to, you are his image bearer and you are to bring him glory. And you, just like all of us and all of humanity, have rebelled against God and sought to assert yourself as your own God. You're either trying to save yourself through good works of, of being moral and you'll earn favor with God, or you're just saying, I don't need God, I'll be irreligious, I'll pave my own way, I'll forge my own path, and I'm telling you both of those end at the same destination. Before God, guilty, condemned. 
Because we are in debt so much for our rebellion and sin against a holy God who created us, who lays claim on us, and who you and I will answer to, whether we want to or not. We can shake our fist all we want, but we will stand before him and we will give an account. And if we say, hey, look at the good I did, I'm telling you, we can't pay that debt. If we say, hey, you know what, I just threw it all off because I thought it was futile and a waste and I just forged my own path, you're still condemned. There's only one way to stand before God and to receive his blessing. That is through his son who came and lived the perfect life yet went to the cross and paid the debt that you and I owed. Friend, if you're here this morning, have you looked to Christ as your Savior? Have you recognized your need for that? Maybe you see that now, and I would just encourage you, cry out to God, even in your own heart, and say, Lord, save me by your mercy through Christ and what he's done for me. Maybe you're here this morning and say, you know, I've got questions about that. We want to talk to you about that. Come and find someone who's been on this platform after service. We would love to talk with you, pray with you, and answer questions. You may, you may even be a little bit unsettled, like, why would you say that I'll stand before God guilty and condemned? We'd love to talk with you from Scripture about that. Find someone who's sitting around you. You're surrounded by people who love the gospel and who would love to talk with you about that. That's our greatest need. Brothers and sisters in the church, if we have recognized this and we have been forgiven this great debt, how is it that we can be resentful toward others around us? Maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, you just don't understand the situation. Friend, if you're struggling that much with it, can I just encourage you to get the help of others around you in the church to help you walk through that? And give you counsel and accountability in that? See, with, with this gospel foundation, we, we are to work out what God is working in us to refer back to Philippians 2. Think about Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Notice what Paul tells the church at Colossae. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Notice what he says. I mean, he says you're you're God's chosen ones. You're holy and beloved. You're not earning anything. You've been given it all in Christ. You are holy. You've been set apart, sanctified. You are beloved. You're loved by God. So you're not doing this to earn. It's because of what you've already been given, right? This is the overflow. He says, so in light of that, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Do you, do you see that? He's saying, he's, he's, again, he's telling us what the definition of love is right there in shorthand. He says, what is kindness? Meet another. It's love. Put on love. It's the belt that holds all this together. So who is it this, this morning as we talk about this that you're really wanting to hold in your debt? They may have no clue about it. It may have been some minor thing that, that's been done that, that you're just holding over them. You're wanting to hold them in debt. It may be something big. Who is it you're not wanting to forgive? In what area of your life do you struggle to offer forgiveness? What's off limits? I'm usually forgiving in these areas, but if somebody wrongs me in this way, they've really crossed the line. What area of your life is that? Love is not resentful. Now here we go, these last two. I told you some of you have this nagging question and we're going to get to it. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Right? So the biblical definition of love is not the world's definition of love. You just affirm everyone, even in their, even in their sin and what they're doing wrong. You affirm them in that. Nope. We can't. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. We'll look at this in two parts. And then what? It rejoices in the truth. So love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Here's a way we can say that. Love cannot ignore unrepentant sin. It just can't. It cannot ignore unrepentant sin. The church at Corinth had rejoiced in much wrongdoing. 1 Corinthians 5, right? 
we saw last week, they were arrogant about the man in immorality. Paul says you're arrogant about it. They're rejoicing in wrongdoing. And 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, they're boasting and they're flaunting their liberties and they're wounding their brothers and sisters with weaker consciences. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they are rude in their actions. They're not waiting on one another and they're gathering for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 through 14 that we're looking at here, those three chapters, they're boasting about the gifts and they're using them to elevate members above one another instead of using them to build up the whole body. There's a lot of wrongdoing that's just being rejoiced in the church at Corinth. All of this is a detriment to the witness of the church. That when the church rejoices in wrongdoing, it, it, it is to the detriment of the church's witness. It takes away. Remember 1 Corinthians 5? Paul says even the world is looking at what's going on there and saying that is gross. It's hurting the witness of the church. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul told them, you're worse off because of your gatherings. And, and so, so they're, they're rejoicing at wrongdoing. Their, their overlooking of unrepentant sin is actually to their detriment. See, our desire instead should be to see truth win. Our desire should be to see truth win. The brothers and sisters, that we are willing to lovingly go to someone and offer correction when it's needed. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But here's another part of that. That too often there is delight in our own hearts when we witness the downfall of others, even our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Is there not? You don't have to shake your head so that nobody else sees you. But let's just be honest in our hearts for a moment. That there's times that they were like, well, I I could have told you that was coming. Why didn't you love them enough to try to go to them and warn them it was coming? That's what Hebrews 3 tells you to do. Serves them right. Right? This is what Psalms 40 talks about with the aha, aha. (laughs) Look at that. Look at that. It's kind of a, a laugh when we see someone else fall. Several years back, I was engaging with a, with a, with a friend, a person that, that I really had, we had personality conflict issues. You remember that? It's not necessarily something I could just identify as sinful, but personality conflict issues, we just didn't jive very well. And, and in that, I, I, was, I was genuinely concerned about something going on in their life, and so I was trying to reach out to them. And, and, um, and I'll be honest with you, I, was, I had grown frustrated. I was growing impatient. Love is not, love is patient, right? I was growing impatient. And I had, was engaging with them, and I had shared with my wife about it, and asking for help, for accountability, and, and uh, they had uh, re- responded to me trying to reach out, and and my frustration was growing, and in the midst of that, uh, my wife had, had read a response from him, and she said, come on, I'm pulling for you. She wasn't talking about me, right? I actually wanted her to join me in my frustration and in my irritability. You ever been there? Like, come on, come on we're married, you know? Uh, can't you be on my team here? And, um, uh, and she said in the midst of that, like, come on, I'm pulling for you. And again, I, I, I was just convicted because I thought, well, I should be too. And honestly, I'm going through the motions and I'm kind of not pulling for them. Brothers and sisters, there, there are these subtle ways that these temptations attack us even as we're going through the motions. And remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, uh, the first three verses here in chapter 13. We offer nothing, we are nothing, we gain nothing. Right? It's nothing without love. Now, now look at what he says next. He says, love rejoices with the truth. I'll share with you two, two things because this is where that major concern is. Are we just about some kind of mushy sentimentalism? First of all, I would answer if that's been your protest, no. Because this is scripture and everything we've been talking about is rooted and grounded in the gospel. 
this patience, this kindness, that it's not irritable, that it doesn't boast. We, we've been rooting this, we've been grounding this in the gospel. It's coming from scripture, but, but no, we're, we're love, there's truth. Love and truth go together. John Stott says, truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. There he's remarking on Ephesians 4 where he says, speak the truth and love to one another. Ray Ortland in his book, The Gospel, says, truth without grace is harsh and ugly. Grace without truth is sentimental and cowardly. That's good. So first and foremost, when we talk about love rejoices with the truth, love rejoices in the gospel. See, Paul will go on to say that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, this is of first importance. Christ was crucified for our sins, according to the scriptures. He's buried, and he was raised, according to the scriptures. That, that, that there is this, this truth that, is, that cannot be compromised. Right? And so the, the church rejoices in the gospel, and the church is, it cannot compromise the gospel. And so there is this truth. And we say we must affirm this truth, right? And so what we talked about is what unites us, not gospel plus, but gospel. There's this truth that we must affirm to be united together in Christ in the church. And then, and then notice as we move on, though, as we seek to rejoice in the truth, here's where it gets difficult is that where it gets difficult is us trying to understand and to draw the line. Where is the line of truth that cannot be compromised, that, that, that must be upheld, and then where on the other side are Christian liberty issues where we can disagree with one another and still love one another and remain in fellowship? Do you see that? So often, because as we see in Romans 14, on liberty issues, we have an opinion about them, don't we? Each has made up his own mind, right? So it doesn't mean you don't have an opinion about it. doesn't mean, but, but what we're saying is, here, here's a good help, is when you say you can't be a Christian and believe that, then, then you're saying that we should preach whatever it is you're holding up there, that this is God's word, thus saith the Lord, this is what he says. And if anybody disagrees, they're going to hell, Right? And so now we've got to understand where is that line? As pastors and elders in the church, we think about it this way. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go into all nations and, and, and make disciples, right? He says, and teach them to obey all I've commanded them. There's the authority. There's the premise. As a pastor, I have authority to say, thus saith the Lord, where it's clear that God has spoken in Scripture. I have authority to, to, to say, this is what God has told us to do. I don't have authority to go beyond that. I've mentioned school a couple times. I'll just use an easier illustration. We homeschool our kids. You will never hear me say, as a Christian, you should homeschool your kids. Because I don't think the Bible speaks that clearly on it. What I can tell you is, Ephesians 6, 4, you have to raise your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But how you work that out, public school, private school, home school, I hope it's no school, but you know, I hope it's not no school is what I mean. I hope that's not the way you're going to work it out. I mean, let's teach them something. But, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying here? I, I, I'm not going to get up and say, let's say for the Lord on that because I don't think scripture clearly says that. Do I have an opinion about it? Obviously. Right? Do you have an opinion about it? Obviously. Hopefully we can talk about it, encourage one another, sharpen one another, and say, hey, if we disagree, we still love each other. And on and on we can go. But brothers and sisters, that's what we need help with in the church. That, that we understand the difference between Christian liberty and uncompromised truth. We have to draw a line here and say, the Bible is very clear about this issue. And so we can't agree to disagree here. But over here where there's liberty, we can agree to disagree and still love one another and remain in, in fellowship. Another way that we rejoice in the truth, now that could be a whole series of sermons, so I know that was fast. If you have questions about it, the other elders are itching to talk to you about it. So, um, but no, I'm, in all seriousness, they really are. Uh, so speaking, I'm just going to keep digging until I get more laughs. So anyway, speaking... <laughs> 
that's better. So speaking the truth uh, to one another. How this works out more and more. If truth is going to win out, then our culture, the church, has got to be saturated in the word and in the gospel, right? I mean, to know what Jesus has commanded, we've got to know the Bible. And we've got to know, yes, this is, this is something that can't be compromised. We've got to be word-saturated. That, that we, we know that this should happen in the church. So, so how does that happen? How does the church become more and more word-saturated? You know, sermons aren't enough. The word has got to continue to echo through the church all week long. Guess what? You have a role to play in that. This means that it begins to, to change your conversations from, from just mere small talk, politeness, and niceties to seeking to encourage one another with God's word. That, that, that as Hebrews says in, in, in chapter 10, that we don't forsake gathering together and that when we gather together, that we seek to stir one another up to love and good works. So think about that, that before the service today, that after the service today, that in base group tonight, that, that in your conversations, how can I stir this person up to love and good works? How can I tell them, do not grow weary of doing good, Right? How can I tell them, fight for your marriage, fight for your children? How, how can I tell them, continue on, fight your sins, seek to mortify it, Romans 8, 13, by the Spirit? How can I encourage them in loving good works? How can I warn them, Hebrews 3, every day as long as it's called today? Both of those verses, both of those sections of Scripture are tied to your perseverance. Go back and study them. They both have this eschatological tone. The day, the end is near. We must maintain and remain in the faith. And part of how that happens is that we warn one another and that we encourage one another and that you and I have a role in that. As we talked about last week, when you say no, you're handicapping the body. You're saying, I don't want to be a part of that. I'm not going to do it. And to use Paul's metaphor here is kind of like just removing a toe foot, whole arm, right? You're, you're handicapping the body. So brothers and sisters, we must see this word, this culture where we saturate in God's word and where we, where we encourage one another in God's word and where we continue to echo God's word all throughout the week. Let me illustrate it this way. When all of this started with the... Um, global health crisis, pandemic, whatever you want to call it, right? Back in March, you remember. Things were, things were encouraged, right? Wash your hands. Right? Don't touch your face. I considered myself at the beginning of all this somebody who had pretty good hygiene. How about you? But I don't know about you, but, but and hearing that over and over, did anybody else ever have the experience, like when I walked into the grocery store, it's like I, I'm not... I'm not I wiped the cart down. I'm not going to touch my face. But it's like my nose just really started to itch. Anybody else be there, ever been there? And you're like, uh, don't do it, don't do it. And so you go down. Like the second aisle, you're like, it is killing me. My nose is itching so bad. By the third aisle, you're like, don't do it. You know, that kind of thing. You think, I can just rub it right here, but I just coughed right there. Like I don't know what to do right now. Maybe I can get my leg up there. I don't know. But I'm dying, right? I'm dying. You think I'm pretty efficient at washing my hands. It's kind of funny the first two times. Happy birthday to you. You know? But that gets old. It's like, I, I got things to do. I can't sing. That's like longer than the song that never ends. Sing that twice while I'm washing my hands. You, you see what I'm saying? It, it's coming to your mind and it's correcting you, right? Because you're thinking about it often. You're hearing it often. So it should be in the life of the church. Am I being patient with this brother or sister right now? Am I being kind with them right now? Am I being prideful right now? See, we need to hear God's word often and be encouraged to abide by it and to press on in it often and be corrected by it often. And I need you and you need one another that we would do that well. That's God's plan. So that God's word is saturated in his word I mean, God's church is saturated in his word and, and that it doesn't, right, that it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but instead rejoices with the truth. But friends, I would love 
but we just don't have time. I'm just going to give grace and cut a whole half page out of my notes right now. I would love to talk about how is it and when is it we should confront brothers and sisters in sin. I think it's a worthy conversation to have. When to overlook and when to confront. But that'll be another time for another day. Look at verse 8. He says, love, well, let's look at verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Friends, let me just, let's do it this way. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And his love for us, let's just believe all things. We've already said that, that, that truth, right, is what reigns, and that love rejoices in truth. So it doesn't mean that, that, that we're talking about some kind of relativism here and it doesn't matter, just believe whatever. No, what Paul's getting at here is that, that love believes the best about people. I am, here's one of the, I said that rudeness is one of the primary issues that causes so much riff in the church today, just the, just the thoughtlessness that we can have of one another. Another thing that is just, that is plagues us today, social media and in, in person, emails, text, is that when we hear from somebody and just read the worst possible intentions and tone into what they say, brothers and sisters, we should repent of that. I just, I'm, I'm grieved by how quick I want to do it. I'm grieved by how other people have done it to me and how I watch people do it. I'm like, how could, you, how could you have such an ungracious tone and just say, man, this person must be thinking that the, the worst possible thing and have the worst possible motives and intentions in what they're doing when they wrote this? And it's just, it's ungodly. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. That love bears all things. It believes the best about people and their intentions and gives them the benefit of the doubt. And if it's confused, it's willing to go and, and, and seek to graciously understand. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Verse 8, love never ends. Now, we don't have time to look at the rest of this passage. We didn't read it on purpose for that reason. Look at verse 13. Look at how Paul ends out right there. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So he says love never ends. And let me just, I like simple, so let me just summarize this for you, I think, as biblically as I can, of what Paul's saying here. That even, even when the Lord returns, faith will become sight, praise God. Hope will be realized. These hope that we hold on to in Christ, it will be realized, and love will endure forevermore. Brothers and sisters, love should mark the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to convict us where conviction is needed, to correct us where correction is needed. Father, to encourage us where encouragement is needed. Father, even, even in our failings, there's, there's no way, there's not one of us here, if we've listened with, by your grace, with humble hearts this morning, who's not been convicted. Your word convicts. Father, remind us of your love even now. Remind us of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Father, let that forgiveness of such great debt warm our hearts even now with your love that it indeed would just overflow from our life into the lives of others. Father, that we would be patient and kind. Father, that we would rejoice in the truth. And that people would look at us and by your grace and the fruit of the gospel working in our lives, they would know that we belong to Jesus because of our love for one another. This in his name we pray. Amen.